welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the Black and Brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. The topic for today is moving on up. Black, brown, and middle class. Moving on up, moving on up oh. to the... E- I'm, I'm sorry, don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't moved up that far. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and get us started on um, this episode, Maurice? Lisette, you and I are both master's degree holding educators. We have uh, graduated with our bachelor's degree um, in education. Uh, Lisette, for you, were you the first to earn a bachelor's degree in the United States in your family? Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. And I actually uh, have a slightly different journey uh, because my mother actually earned her bachelor's degree from NIU. She came from Chicago to DeKalb. Um, You know, it's really interesting. She grew up, mom and dad at home. They owned a home on the south side of Chicago. Um, My grandfather, I believe, had been able to purchase that home using the GI Bill uh, because he had served in World War II. Uh, You really see kind of the development and creation of the black middle class during the 1960s. My mother was born in 1957, and she's proud of that, so she doesn't mind me sharing. Um, But... Uh, sent, they sent my, my mother off to, to school. Several of her sisters also hold college degrees. And um, it is really interesting that once she got here, she was a registered nurse. And so I grew up a part of my childhood. My mother was a registered nurse. She would work 12-hour shifts. My mom got sick. She was injured on the job and then got sick. We moved on to uh, into an economic situation in which she needed to receive disability. And so at that point in life, we shifted to a place in which we were living on Section 8. We were living on uh, with the medical card and the link card. And so I think that really exemplifies the idea that the middle class is something that you can have and that you can lose. So then for me, I went off to college, earned my degree, began teaching. And I remember that first teacher's paycheck, Lisette, can I be honest with you? I had never seen that much money at one time. Wow. And so um, I remember my very first year in DeKalb, the starting salary for a teacher was something around the uh, 40,600. And the median income in the city of DeKalb was 35,000. Wow. And so I recognized that I, I had moved into the middle class. Now, at that point, I was near the bottom of the middle class, but I had moved into the middle class. 
And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but let's, uh, let's, let's hear what, what has been your journey. So as a first-generation Mexican-American, my parents came here from Mexico at the age of 19, and they worked multiple jobs to make ends meet. And so I grew up hearing a common conversation at home was, you have to work hard, you have to save money, um, you have to go to school, in terms of, you know, for them, graduating with a high school diploma was everything. And so I heard about the importance of hard work all my life. And I also was very aware of the sacrifices that they made to come to this country and to have what, you know, they have. And so as a young girl, I always felt like I had to work really hard to make sure that their sacrifices were worth it. And so luckily I was very blessed with amazing educators and eventually earned my teaching degree, went back to school, got my master's in literacy, and then went back to school to get another master's for ed leadership. But you talk about that first paycheck, right? Um, I remember having an epiphany when I got my check and realized, wow, I make more than my parents combined. It wasn't right off the bat, but it was well into like maybe my fourth year teaching that I was like, wow, I out earn my parents. And so that realization that I've leveled up. So the other part of this conversation for me is thinking about my my spouse my wife is white and yet we have talked about the fact that a lot we have a lot of things in common in our childhood we both were raised by just our mothers uh we both had working mothers uh because even though an rn is you know requires a license it definitely is still that working class you're putting in you know 36 48 hours a week sometimes 12 hour shifts um, and, and, um, you know, just first off hats, hats off to our nurses and other, um, uh, people in the medical field right now, especially during this time of COVID, but especially as I think about my mom working and then again, going back to my mother-in-law working, my mother-in-law has been an incredibly hard worker, um, you know, this entire, uh, her entire working career, and uh, certainly since I've known her, but, um, you know, one of the things I think about in terms of that um, relationship there was that um, my mother-in-law never qualified for any type of these services, right? Like in terms of link card or things like that. That really impacted the way I thought about my need to move up. When I was a, a second year teacher, I was running the Black Student Union. I had a group of, of young black men in my room after school for our Black Student Union meeting. And I asked them how many of them uh, had the link card, right? How many of their families had the link card? And a lot of hands went up. And I asked them then, how many of you plan on having the link card or medical card when you get older? And a lot of hands went up. Mm. And my heart was like broken. I was like, wait, I don't think you understand how this is supposed to work. These are supposed to be things that help you along your journey, but they are not things that you plan on going to still have when you are a little bit older. And so um, 
you know, I, I, I think about those small steps uh, along the way um, and, and kind of that, that impact. Yes. So why don't we, for the listeners, let's define what the middle class is because it has changed. Um, I think what people would assume qualifies you as, as being part of the middle class may actually be surprising. Um, so why don't you go ahead and, and, and define the middle class first for our listeners? Absolutely. So part of the middle class, there's a, there are a few ways that it can be to defined. Uh, the middle class can be defined by your income, obviously. And so if you are in that middle 50%, right, if you're in that middle 50% in terms of income uh, across our nation, and, and that differs obviously from state to state and from city to city. Um, another way that it can be defined is part of the educational middle class, meaning you have a bachelor's degree or, or above. And, and then a, a third way is occupational middle class. Um, and looking at, you know, those that are doing uh, white collar jobs or those that are in management positions, you know, some of those different things. And so, um, you know, I think you and I, Lissette, when we look at being in the middle class, um, well, certainly we've attained it uh, educationally and, and by holding a licensed uh, or being in a licensed profession um, and then, you know, uh, also economically. One of the things, though, that um, happens in terms of defining the middle class is that it can be secure or insecure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's another piece of it. Are you securely in the middle class or uh, do you have some economic insecurity? You know, we just did our episode on the Black-Brown divide and we talked about how economics is one of the big rubs, right, between the two communities. I just read a study by the Stanford, Harvard, and Census Bureau that says that the American dream remains alive for Latino Americans. And the premise is that Hispanic Americans are doing much better than their parents when it comes to that upward mobility and that we are also climbing the economic ladder at a slightly lower rate than our white peers, but much faster than our black peers. It's interesting because one of the things that it attributes this to is the work ethic from their parents. And, and it is a very, I would say, misguided, perhaps even controversial thing to say and to, and to, to claim, um, but it does say that the children of immigrants have long been shown to be more driven, motivated, and have exceptional outcomes. And also that children and grandchildren of Mexican-American immigrants are slightly less likely to be raised in poverty than, than Blacks. But it also, you speak to that insecurity, right? Just because you've made it to the middle class does not mean that you're going to stay there. You, I, I think for both groups, we are one crisis away from, from sliding back. And you spoke to that, right? Your mom had a career. She ended up going on disability. And that drastically changed your outcomes. Correct. I, I, I think the, the idea that Black people do not work hard 
is a racial epithet that has been told over and over and over again. I was just going to say that. Which is absurd when you consider this country was built on the free labor of black people. The city of Washington, D.C. was built on the on the free labor of black people. So to say that black people don't work hard, here's one thing I will say though, Lissette, the American dream is very much, uh, how do I say this? It, it, it is much more difficult to convince black youth that the American dream exists. And rightfully so. If you're living in inner city Chicago, and you've seen people with potential be shot and killed, you've seen people with potential leave and not come back, you've, you've, you've go to the same schools with teachers that, that um, are not there very long, they're not connected and committed I just think that it's it's very challenging to talk about that American dream and try to convince uh, young black people that that it it's still there. You know, I think you're onto something because you're absolutely right that my parents very much bought into the American dream, and I grew up hearing that constantly constantly. And I also grew up with my parents expressing a great amount of gratitude for everything that they have had. Because in comparison to what their economic situation was in Mexico, my dad will tell you he is living the dream. He is a homeowner. He has been able to, um, do a little bit of traveling. You know, he goes back and forth to Mexico. He's been able to purchase vehicles. While it was a struggle in the beginning, he still feels that he achieved what he set out to achieve when he came to this country. And so I think a lot of Latino children, not all, because we still face challenges, but I think many Latino children, especially first and second generation, grow up in environments where that's what they are hearing. And so they start to buy into it too. And on the flip side, it does put a lot of burden on the children though. I do recall feeling a lot of pressure. Like I have to do this because I don't want my parents' sacrifices to to be in vain. Or I have to show my parents that, you know, They made the right decision. And that is a big burden when you're a young kid. But I don't feel like our Black students, our Black youth are hearing the same thing nor experiencing the same thing. And you talk about inner city Chicago. Go to rural towns. There are are Black families, even in rural areas, that, that are struggling. I think oftentimes, again, because of the media, we tend to focus on inner city black youth, but there are also black youth who are struggling in rural communities. And what kind of opportunities are they seeing there? Lissette, to your point, I'm reminded of uh, the comedian who asked the question, 
What about outer city black youth? You know, um, so so there is absolutely, I think, sometimes a a high focus on that. Having grown up here um, in DeKalb, Illinois, in, in this small community, you know, I could look around as we talk about our journey to the middle class. I could look around my AP class and see that I was I was doing something different mm-hmm. because I was it. Mm-hmm. The only other There were two other people of color in in, in my AP high school classes. One was the son of a Mexican immigrant. The other was the daughter of an African immigrant who was a professor. Mm. And so in terms of of African-Americans who were in AP classes, it was pretty legitimately in my class of 430 kids, it was me. And so I think about that on, in terms of that journey to the middle class, um, that, that there, we are receiving some very different messages. I, I do know, I do know that my mother preached education. I do know other moms in the black community that preached education. I think that where we struggle is that it, it, is, not, um, it is not always followed up with by some of our educators their expectations mm-hmm. of, of those black students. Whereas again, and you know, we've talked about this before, Lissette, almost that, that invisibility of the Latino community in some cases actually is okay. Not that it's okay, but, but that it, what it does is it doesn't have that negative impact. Right. Well, and that's exactly why in that episode where I asked you, what do you think is worse to have your only representation be through slavery or to be invisible? And I, I don't, I'm no psychologist, but I often wonder what that does to the psyche of our students, because I'll tell you what, if all I'm seeing is, is images of slavery and mistreatment, I don't know what that would do to me and, and how, how I would view school. Whereas for me, I was able to kind of just navigate in the background. Um, but I also want to switch gears here a little bit and take us in a slightly different direction. So as you mentioned, you and I are part of this middle class now. And we understand that just because we've a- attained this, this certain level of income, we are still at risk of, of, like I said earlier, falling back. Part of that is attributed to wealth and assets, which are two totally different things. Yes, you may be at a certain income level, but let's say you do have a crisis. Are you able to fall back on assets or do you have any wealth that is being passed on through generations? There's a very big difference between rich and wealth. I mean, ne- neither one of us are rich, but there is a difference between rich and wealth. Yeah, so there's a, a, a report called Economic Insecurity, the Experience of African-American and Latino Middle Classes. Um, it's actually uh, done by demos. Um, and it's from 2008, so it's a little bit outdated, but I bring it up because it actually includes a, a few things to think about in terms of being able to be considered uh, economically secure versus economic insecurity. And a couple of those categories that it talks about, like you mentioned, are assets. It talks about your education level. It talks about um, 
housing, right? And, and, and um, how much you're paying for housing talks about your budget and, and the amount of money that you have left over at the end of the year. And then it talks about access to healthcare. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to put myself on front street right now. <laughs> I, I, I thank the Lord. My income has gone up drastically since I've began my career in education. And all of that being said, my savings account does not have very much to show for it. My student loans does not have a very huge impact on it. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I own a, a rental property, I own a house, and I own two cars. But when I say I own them, I mean I'm making payments on them. Mm. If I were to have to go without a paycheck for anything more than two months, I'd, I'd be lost. And so there really is something to say about the fact that, yeah, my income on paper looks tremendous, particularly if you start comparing it internationally, and that's a whole nother conversation. But my wife and I are, are doing okay in terms of income. What we are working on right now is debt management. And, and one of the things that happens when we start talking about wealth and assets is do you own your house? Well, and, and then on top of that, how much is your house worth? Mm -hmm. So when you look at American political policy, things like redlining, where black people could not get houses of great value or they could only get it in this neighborhood and all the houses in that neighborhood had lower value. The same thing happened to, to Latino families, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously those things uh, uh, produce some economic insecurity. Um, Lisette, you know, again, I, I'm not gonna make you put your information out there like that, but I mean, where, where are you sitting at on that? Uh, do you, you know, do you find yourself in a more securely middle-class position or, or is that something that you think about? I think about this a lot. So student loans are definitely something that Brett and I are constantly talking about. So when we first were married, we were able to get a home through a VA loan. Brett was uh, in the army and he served and did a tour in Iraq. And so we were able to purchase our home and then we eventually moved but when we bought our house, it was a foreclosure, and this was after the 2008 recession. And so home values were really low, and we were able to buy a house, a decent-sized house. And we lived there a few years, and so then when we turned around to sell it, we were able to make some money off of it. And so we took that equity and paid off my student loan. And so that put us in a better position. Then, but then Brett went back to get his master's and this time he was not, he was not able to receive the, those uh, benefits that, from that GI bill. And so he did have to take out some student loans. And so now we have his loans to pay. So now we are like you, my salary has increased drastically from when I first started teaching. Definitely, though, not at the point where I would feel safe or secure if I needed to take time off. I mean, God forbid, 
you know, an illness befalls us, I mean, we would be in, in, in deep trouble. And, you know, that the rule of thumb is usually six to nine months of your living expenses should be in the bank. But how many people even think about that? Uh, that same article that you reference really talks about financial literacy being taught at a much earlier age, particularly for the black and brown communities. And that's something that we definitely do not see happening. But again, these are the things that Brett and I talk about in terms of how we are going to raise our children. You know, we want to make sure that we are instilling in them financial literacy. But here's the thing, going back though to being the daughter of immigrants, I always remind my kids about how I grew up and how vastly different it is from their experience. I grew up in a two bedroom basement that was rented out to us and my parents had their one room and then me, my sister and my two brothers slept in the same room. They were on the top bunk. We were on the bottom bunk. And this is kind of a funny story, but we were, I think at the store, I think we're at Walmart and Max runs to me and he says, Hey, can we get this? And you know, just as a figure of speech, I'm like, no, put that away. We ain't got money for that. And he looked at me and he was like, are we poor? And so just the fact that he automatically equated me saying, no, put that away. We don't have money for that right now. He thought we were poor. And I'm like, wow, you really do not have the perspective that I had growing up. And so being part of the middle class, I still revert back to wanting to remind my own children about the struggle. Absolutely. They need to know what it is to eat government cheese. You know, now, now listen, now my mama's going to listen to this and she's going to get mad because she's always telling people, you never grew up wanting for nothing, baby. You never grew up wanting for nothing. And it's so true. She took care of us. I don't know how she made it work, but she did magic. Well, yeah, you don't know how broke you were till you grow up and start seeing how everybody else grew up, right? I didn't realize how poor we were until I was in college. What what happened for me is is I got to middle school and 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 I made friends with some rich folk uh, and I was like, hold on, wait a second. Not only do y'all have uh, a car that doesn't sound like you're at a racetrack, but you have two cars and they're both from this year. How did that happen? You know what I'm saying? Or you know, for me, I thought people were rich because they each had their own room. I was like, wow, you have your own room. That was amazing. But I didn't realize the extent of it until I got to college. And I'm like, man, I grew up vastly different than my peers. I'll tell you what, I always had Nikes on my feet. Stunt. And I still, I, I always had Nikes on my feet. And I, and I still believe in that. My wife does not. So my wife buys my children little Walmart shoes and, and they fall apart. You know, I feel like shoes are something to invest in. I, nonetheless... <laughs> Maybe that actually comes right from that status symbol. One of the things I think about um, is not having enough money to really do some things that you really need to do. And so we would go and spend that money on something that we probably didn't need. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, something when we talk about financial literacy, a very, very pervasive mindset is, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and spend my money on this because I'm not going to be rich anyway off this little bitty money. <laughs> right? 
On the flip side of that, though, was, uh, Mama, can we get some McDonald's? And what was the answer? You got some McDonald's money? (laughs) We always had, you got beans and rice at home. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, we got food at home. Yes, Mother, I know we have food at home, but food at home is not McDonald's food. And everybody knows that. So Um, how do you, do you feel like you are also cognizant of that with your own children? And how does it impact the way in which you raise them? So there's a couple of things that I think about. And, and my children said something that reminded me of, of a Cosby episode um, and in which Rudy comes to uh, Dr. Huxtable um, and says, Dad, my, my friends at school are making fun of me because you paid $5,000 for that painting. And so now they're calling me rich. And Dr. Huxtable says, your mother and I are rich. You are not rich. And so, you know, my, my, my children um, had made a comment about one of their cousins who, um, you know, is growing up and her mom is doing a great job raising her. Her mom is a CNA. Her mom is doing her thing. And one of my children had made a comment about income difference or something. And I remember hearing it and being furious because don't you talk about nobody with a single mom. That's me. That's my my mother. That's, that's my upbringing. And so I I want them to, to, I think the biggest thing I want them to understand that their value, their worth does not come from material things. Mm. And so for me, I I guess that's, that's the end all be all. I don't, I don't want them. I want them to know that yes, we're okay that anything that they need, mommy and daddy can probably take care of. It may take a couple of weeks, but we'll take care of it for you. Um, we, we're going to get you some experiences. We're going to get you to, uh, some opportunities to do things that maybe we didn't do as a kid. But, but at no point will you believe that you are more valuable than somebody else because you have stuff. Yeah. That I, is a problem. Yeah, I agree. You know, I got to be real because keeping it real is what I do, right? <laughs> I find myself withholding things from my children. And it's because, <laughs> I know you laugh, but I'm, I don't know, it's just this hyper awareness, like, yeah, I probably could get you that, but I'm not going to, because you don't need it right now. And so I am always finding myself like, do I withhold? But then I get things like, oh, we're poor. And I obviously don't want my child to have that skewed perspective, but, when I asked you about how this impacts in the way that you raise your children, are you talking to them about financial literacy and investing and savings or are we at the point where it's like, no, nah, I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. So we have used um, a model that we found in the book, the seven habits of highly effective people by Dr. Uh, Stephen R. Covey. Um, we uh, have asked our children to take care of some jobs around the house. And when those jobs are completed to satisfaction, they can receive payment. And from that payment, um, what we really have tried to teach, you you know, um, one of the pieces that's really important for me um, in, in our faith walk is we teach them tithing and offering. So if they get $5, that tithe is 50 cents. And they're going to give 50 cents as an offering. So a dollar is going to go to the church. 
and then they need to save a dollar. And then that other part they can uh, spend. Um, The problem with that has been they don't want to do nothing. (laughs) And so, and then on the other side of that is we were not being consistent with our payments. So that's something we're looking to restart again. But, but again, I want them to recognize that they can give, uh, giving, uh, to something that is not for profit is important. I want that to always be a part of what they do. And so there are other things that we, uh, and we've talked about donating to NPR, by the way, NPR, if you want to pick this up, you know, and, and uh, syndicate us here. Anyways. Love uh, NPR, by the way. <laughs> so do I. And I, I it's, it's, speaking of, I want to come back to this love of NPR because when you talk about middle class and some of the social aspects of like, do you think you're better than me? Cause you listen to NPR. <laughs> um, <laughs> you learn but, something new every day. You learn something. Right. Exactly. So um, yeah, there's a little bit of that financial conversation. What, what about you, you and Brett? We're, we're trying. We are also trying, but it, it is, it's challenging because we're also a bicultural home. And so we have very different uh, perspectives and ideas on on the topic. And so, like I said, I'm always trying to remind my kids of the struggle, even though they're not struggling per se. And he doesn't have that perspective. But you kind of talked about what I, I kind of want to switch gears and you kind of brought it up. So you think you're all that Maurice because you, you moved up to the middle class. Oftentimes what we see is we get some grief from from people close to us are you the um oh no your mother went to to college did your siblings my older brother went for a little while Mm -hmm. my younger brother would tend to sign up for classes and then like no i'm not really doing this and again did you so i asked that do you get grief for it or do you get little snide comments because because i get them here and there. And sometimes, unfortunately, family can be the worst. I, I remember a situation where I was uh, given some advice and it was like, oh, you think you're all that because you're a teacher or because you, you went to college. And it's, it's not even like that at all. I'm, like, I'm right. just a connector by nature. You know, right. if I can help anyone in any way, hey, have you tried this or you should go down this path? And it's just advice doesn't necessarily mean that you think you're better or you know more. That's just what I naturally do. In fact, just most recently, me and a friend were texting back and forth because she's in the process of purchasing a home. And, you know, this is who we had for our home inspection and things like that, because I want to see other brown people elevate. Right. So my older brother actually is the very first black owner of a black beauty supply shop in Rockford. Congrats. So so he's doing his thing, Dizzle, no college, well, limited college, I should say, no college degree, um, but, but the brother is an incredibly intelligent. Um, and, and man, I hope he never listens to this because if he hears me say that, he'll, he'll never let me live it down. But I, I'm so proud of him, incredibly intelligent. My younger brother uh, has not quite found exactly what he wants to do yet, but again, is intelligent. He can fix things with his hands. He has a gift for, for art. Um, I, I, I think that thus far, we have been pretty good about that. In fact, I had two younger cousins graduate from NIU this year. 
and one of whom told me directly, you were part of my inspiration. Now, he also told me I was part of his inspiration for why he is pursuing a rap career, you know, so Mr. McDizzle showing up. Um, But, you know, that idea for me, uh, I want to be that example for my cousins and for other young black men who, who, because here, here's part of it, Lisette, um, part of that journey, I mentioned those AP classes. When I went, got back to my group of black friends in high school, they would say, oh, you mean those white people classes? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there is almost this idea that this idea of moving up of, of, you know, the, the better car or the better house. It does not help that I'm married to a white woman, right? Because that's the other stereotype is, well, when you blow up, exactly. When you blow up, you go and get yourself a white woman. Uh, but for all of my listeners, uh, all of our listeners, I-, I want you to understand my wife and I are celebrating 13 years together. Uh, we started dating in high school. When she started dating me, I was broke. <laughs> so, so don't think she came to me for no money. And by the way, she was broke. So don't think I came to her for no money. Um, right. But, but instead we, you know, we, we fell in love. Amen. By, by the way, happy anniversary to you, Lisette. And, and um, that was just this past week. Ours is on Tuesday um, uh, uh, this week. Uh, anyways. Um, so there was a little bit of that struggle of identity. Mm-hmm. The idea that being black, and I would imagine that to some extent, unless that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you can speak to it here in just a moment, to some extent being, being, being Mexican-American, right, we identify with struggle. And because of that, if you ain't struggling, then you ain't really black or you ain't really brown, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. So I think there are a lot of Latinos that could probably resonate with this idea of Ni de aquí, ni de allá. So anytime you try to do things, quote unquote, the right way, oh, you know, from the Latino side, oh, you, that's some white people stuff. Why are you doing that? That's for white people. But then you, I mean, this is America. And when you are, you know, in the workforce, you're also reminded that you're a Latina. So it's like, you're not really American because you're Mexican-American and then you're not even Mexican because you're Mexican-American. So it's always been that struggle and and identity plays a huge part in that. But we got to keep it real. Like we hear it from our own community sometimes and it's just not okay. And and, and me too. I'm married to a, a white man. And so there's that whole like, oh, you're a sellout. But then there's also this like idea of, oh, you leveled up which also drives me crazy because I'm not trying to put my husband on blast. I'm the breadwinner. (laughs) Well, okay. All right. All right. All right. I I sometimes want to say that to all, like, especially older Mexican women, like, Oh, you married a white man. And it's like this silent congratulations. And I'm like, listen, that's not why I married him. Just like you said, you and your wife were both broke right? We both have worked very hard and I did not marry my husband because he had money, but that's always the idea. One of the kindest things that I heard, there is a, an elder black leader in the community here in DeKalb. 
and we were sitting in the black student union meeting at the high school. And he said to me, you know, you came back, you were married to a white woman, you had this degree, and I was not really sure about what you were going to be, but you are for the people. You, you are one of, the, you are one of the, the most woke brothers that I know, and you are for the people. And I'm grateful that you got that degree and you're able to work inside of the system. You, you, you work in the school every day. I get to come to the school, but I'm an outsider coming in. You are, are get to work. On the flip side of that, though, Lisette, here's what I'll say. When there were some issues with the Black Student Union and administration, as much as I wanted to tell the BSU, I'm with you, I'm on your side, they saw me as part of the administrative team. Yeah, and part of that middle class, perhaps you couldn't relate. It, it's this idea that you're out of touch, right? You can't, you can no longer connect. Here's the end all be all for me though. I realize, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a story you will hear me say over and over again. I realize that regardless of the number of degrees I have, and I plan on going to get my, my EDD, I'm, I'm going to continue regardless of that. When the shirt and tie are not on, when I'm driving in, in the Chrysler 300 and I'm bumping Christian hip hop, nonetheless, right? I'm bumping Christian hip hop in the Chrysler 300 in my sweatpants, t-shirt and Jordans. Do people see me as middle class or do they, do, do their minds still have that initial bias? Of course. And so I realize that as much as, as I, I can try to achieve that middle class until America gets beyond some of that, that bias, mm -hmm. right? That visual bias that it has. I'm still a black man in America. And, and, and that, that is part of my experience. A hundred percent. Now with Latinas having the biggest wage gap, you know, and maybe this is for another episode, but I, I would like to explore how, even though you are a black man, you're still a man. And how does that pan out with me, who is a Mexican-American woman? And maybe we'll leave that for another episode. But as we get ready to wrap up here, I always want the listeners to walk away with at least learning something new. Maybe we should get on NPR, right? But the, the study that you reference does include some really good policy recommendations that I think uh, would be good for the listeners to hear a few of them. So some of them include boosting home ownership and savings, uh, reducing debt and stopping discriminatory lending practices, which we know is very pervasive amongst the black and brown community, expanding access to higher education, and not only making sure that we are enrolling, but completing that we are actually leaving with a degree and not just the student loan debt. Um, so as we're getting ready to wrap up though, Maurice, what is the one takeaway that you want our listeners to walk away with? I want to re-summarize what I just said. I want you to know that I am grateful that I have experienced a part of the American dream. I own a house, I've got some cars, 
My children are well fed and taken care of. And yet I am still a black man in America. And if 2020 has shown us anything, it is that that still means something. For those of you whose immediate response to that is, well, Maurice, you're a good guy. Nothing like that would ever happen to you. You are a law-abiding citizen. As long as you do what the police tell you to do, you won't have any problems. I want you to know that that is not true. Uh, for me, I would want, for all the first generation, second generation, even recent immigrants, I want to let you know that I see your efforts. I see how hard you are trying. Um, I see the work that you're putting in. Just know that there are people who have been there and are more than happy to lend a helping hand should you need it. And so we're a very resilient group of people. And in spite of all of the negative, violence-inducing political rhetoric, that we are hearing right now, we are making some gains. And so reach out, we need to lean on one another. And like I said, you, there are plenty of people willing to help you along the way. So that is all for today. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I'm one of your hosts, Lisette Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid, your other host. Thank you for being with us. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Yeah.